Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this gathering and the opportunity that we have to gather together in your name, in your spirit, and as these little ones are amongst us, and as our friends are amongst us, as our elders are amongst us, um, as this family gathers together, and as we study together, uh, may we grow together, not only in knowledge and wisdom and understanding, in maturity, but grow closer to one another through our study together. I thank you for all who have come out tonight that just perhaps desire to seek you a little bit more. And I pray as we dig into your word and do our best to listen to what it is that you would have to teach to us. God, I pray that our hearts and our souls would be postured in such a way as to receive from you exactly what you have for us. Thank you for the words that you have passed down through history that we get to study. Enjoy it is to do that. Um, and may, most of all, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. We are in the book of Leviticus. For those of you who are brand new or just visiting, my name is Kevin. Thank you so much for coming out to Spark. A long time ago, we started a book called Genesis. It's the first book of this thing called the Bible. We took approximately, I don't know, 50 some odd weeks to get through that, and then another 50 weeks to get through the second book of the Bible called Exodus, and now we're in Leviticus. And so I thought we would start with a reading from Leviticus chapter 1. If you have your Bibles or an electronic copy, you're more than welcome to pull that out and follow along. Um, there will be a couple parts in this particular message that I will encourage you to possibly write some things, circle some things, and as we have done in the past, uh, not frequently, but every now and then, cross some things out, <laughs> depending upon what version of the Bible that you have. But we'll leave that for uh, a later time. So this is Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Get ready to be inspired. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. That's the first eight verses of this book of Leviticus. Leviticus has a reputation and probably well-deserved, depending upon your perspective, of being one of the most challenging and difficult books in the Bible. And for good reason, most of you probably almost fell asleep just during the reading of those verse, uh, eight verses. And if I kept going through eight chapters, it's basically the exact same thing, except instead of a bowl, it'll be a goat. Instead of a goat, it might be a pile of flour that you mix with oil. Instead of a pile of flour, it might be a pigeon. And then there's a process over and over and over again through which you all go 
<laughs> okay, are we really going there? Uh, Leviticus has the reputation of being so difficult or challenging that some of you have even started a Bible reading plan. You got through Genesis well, Exodus well, and then Leviticus is like, okay, wait, I don't really need to stick to this particular plan. Leviticus is also one of those books in the Bible that is often used and perhaps abused. There are portions in Leviticus that are taken and leveraged at really important times. For example, if your child is being disobedient, if anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. Some of you, good parenting, put that up on the refrigerator right next to your little contract with the little stars, right? Making sure that all of your children are set right in place. For skeptics of the Bible, people who are just like either unsure or atheists or really don't have any affinity or affections for the Bible, Leviticus can often be a place where some contradictions or some ridiculous things can be found which people will either utilize or abuse or try to exploit for their own purposes or their own ideas. One of my favorites is Leviticus 19.28. Somebody tattooed on their ankle the verse that says, do not cut your bodies or put any tattoo marks on yourselves, for I am the Lord. <laughs> Throughout the book of Leviticus, especially in certain portions, you're going to find very specified uh, directions and instructions for how to make these sacrifices. You read some of it. Here's how, what you're supposed to do with the head. Here's what you're supposed to do with the blood. Uh, here's what you're supposed to do with the kidneys. Here's what you're supposed to do with the fat of the kidneys. Here's what you're supposed to do with that particular, the crop of the bird, etc. It just goes on and on and on. And so I was thinking, how can I explain for my congregation, for this beautiful community, a little bit of an outline of what is Leviticus from an outline perspective? And I thought this would probably make a really good outline. Uh, this particular portion is the round cut. Here's where the tri-tip comes in, the skirt stays from this pretty. I mean, this to me is a great outline and illustration, and I see applause from one of our board members. Let's close in prayer and I'll go have a steak. So, <laughs> this is Leviticus. It's filled with all sorts of things that are honestly very foreign to us, very distant to us. Um, some of us in culture conversations, especially in recent years, have had verses from Leviticus thrown around as if they were weapons of mass destruction. So as we enter into Leviticus, there's a lot of challenges that we're going to have because we bring some of this cultural baggage with us. We bring some of our distance with us. For example, I mean, I'm sure some of us in this room have, but very few of us, especially in the modern day and especially in our particular context, has ever slaughtered an animal or knows what that's like. Now, some of you in this room who have, these passages feel more real to you. You know what it's like, what it takes, what kind of effort, what kind of energy, how tiring, exhausting, and how disturbing it can possibly be. Um, so we have all of that that we bring as we study the book of Leviticus. And today, what I'd like to do is just share with you a little bit of the journey and a little bit of an introduction because we're going to be in Leviticus for a while. So there's lots of questions that are going to emerge. As we have done in the past, please make sure that you contact us and just say, hey, what is this? Figure it out together and let's start a conversation. This text is in our Bibles and it's there for a reason. And oftentimes, for those of us who are in the Christian faith or even in the Jewish faith, when we get to particular portions that we don't understand, we have a tendency to just simply dismiss it because, well, we don't understand it and it's so foreign to us. And honestly, some of it's a little gross and I don't really want to know that that's in my Bible. But it's here. 
And because it's here and because it's been passed down to us over millennia, there's probably some beautiful truths about who we are as we peer deep into history as to who they were, what they thought, what they felt, and what these symbols and these rituals meant. For example, Leviticus isn't the beginning of the Bible. Thank the Lord for some of you. Like, if you did a Bible year reading plan, <laughs> those wouldn't exist if Leviticus was the number one book. We start off our story with a beautiful, poetic, narrative way of describing the reality of this world. And here's where it's going to be really impossible for me to sum up 50-some-odd weeks of teaching through Genesis. But it's a way of saying that let us begin by recognizing that this book, Leviticus, comes after a whole lengthy journey that a group of people back in the Middle East have already gone through to describe beautiful things such as the creation of the world, a nomadic family starting from somewhere deep in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, but Ur of the Chaldeans, this guy by the name of Abraham, who travels 1,200 miles to be essentially start an entirely new people group. That people group grows through conflicts, family, covenant, all sorts of unfortunate relationship mishaps. And through all of that, they grow to become a nation. They become uh, much more prominent. They get onto the scene so much as they start to make a mark, so much so that we have archaeological evidence of this family now making its mark on history. And that family eventually becomes enslaved by a greater power. And that greater power oppresses them, puts them to harsh labor. And now this family that has become essentially a nation is asking all sorts of questions about the nature of this world. We knew that this world was about God creating this world beautifully and wonderfully and fashioned it together out of chaos. But now we have the question of, is God here with us in the midst of power, politics, and all of that that comes with it? And it is only after they are freed and liberated, traveling through a desert and a wilderness, not quite sure where they're going, not quite sure when they're going, when the cloud moves and the fire moves, that's when they move. So they're kind of at the behest of whatever this deity, this God, this Yahweh is, meets with Moses, but doesn't necessarily meet with all the people. All of this, all these questions, it's after all of that, that this now enters into the scene. There are some huge themes that we have to take with us into the study of Leviticus. Creation, chaos, freedom, covenant, community, story, narrative. This is really important because Leviticus is going to be a list of a bunch of do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. And here are the very specific outlines, kind of like the cow cut up. And we will often forget that Leviticus actually comes within the grand story and the grand narrative of what God has been doing ever since the beginning in Genesis. The next themes that are found are global redemption, politics and power, and how do you build a nation? And after all of those things, after all of the discussions that we've had through Genesis and Exodus, we now come to a portion of the scriptures that gets extremely specific to the priests to the Israelites that are still wandering, trying to figure out how to make their way into what will soon be the promised land. And before they do, as they're kind of caught in this middle place between nation building and the tabernacle and Sinai and the law that God has given and the covenant that God makes with his people, and before they become a nation in their own land, this little segment interjects itself to infuse the people now 
with a whole new set of meaning structures, ritual, purity, ceremony, and calendar. We're going to get the calendar out of Leviticus. You're going to get how to treat your neighbor and your enemy and your neighbor's donkey. You're going to get sexual purity laws. You're going to get offering laws. You're going to get all of that in Leviticus before they become a nation. So today what I'd like to do is start with just a beginning portion. Chapters 1 through 7 is repetitiously like the portion that we just read at the very beginning. If you are coming to make an offering, which should cause for us to think, wait a second, there was no necessary command yet to give an offering at Leviticus because they're in a culture when offerings and sacrifices are normal. So there's some assumptions that are already being made even at the beginning there. And these are ritual sacrifices, and there's very specified directions for what those are. And so Leviticus, at the very beginning of its opening chapters, begins this segment of the scriptures with ritual. The things that you are to do, how you are to follow specified directions, and how you are to do them on a regular basis, whether they be offerings during this particular season, offerings for this particular season. I like to think of this particular segment of Leviticus in the light of the great movie Fiddler on the Roof and Tevye. In this movie, for those of you who have seen it, you know, the very beginning sets the tone that Tevye talks about tradition, tradition. Traditions do two specific things. These rituals, why I cover my head, why I wear tassels on the corners, why we celebrate Shabbat, these rituals that happen. He says two things. They remind us who we are, and they show our devotion to God. These are two things that Tevier says why we keep our rituals, why do we keep our traditions. Without our traditions, we are as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. We have no foundation. We are not quite sure how we are to stand. Now, rituals are not something that just happen in religious circles. For those of you who are interested in maybe sociology or psychology, Scientific American actually had an article uh, entitled, Why Do Rituals Work? And there are real benefits to rituals, religious or otherwise. And in this particular article, they talk about the variety of rituals that all of us do, all of us participate in. Let's say before a speech or before a competition or a test or a challenge that is coming up, some of us develop a ritual, a ritual that helps us get prepared or a ritual that helps us to get ready for the thing that we're supposed to do. Um, a ritual, as this article so states, will help us actually become physiologically more capable, more ready, less anxious as we go through our ritual. Sometimes some, uh, the article talks about a ritual will help us to actually engage with hope and the future. So it's like a lucky charm. The ritual grounds us in believing the very best out of what is to come. How many of you probably went through a little ritual before you played Powerball? And it didn't work, I know. I know, you, you got, well, you got another couple days. So there are rituals for mourning, for death, for the moments when we have to deal with the loss and tragedies. And for all of us who have been to funerals or memorial services, every single one of them include rituals, songs that you sing, flowers that you uh, put together. 
moments that you have at the gravesite. These are all rituals that help us cope and deal with. Uh, rituals can be commemorations. Rituals can be daily and weekly habits. Whenever things happen in your life or you want to make a new difference or you start at the uh, new year, at the new year where you are doing all these New Year's resolutions, you begin whole new rituals that help to ground you in your everyday. Some of you have a daily ritual, and if that ritual is messed up, you know that you're going to have a bad day. One of my favorite rituals that I enjoy and like is the haka. Does anybody know what a haka is? It was began, it began by the Maori people of New Zealand. And this is a ritual. And there's something beautiful and powerful and moving with this ritual. This is right before the World Cup of Rugby. I believe it was in 2011. And this is the New Zealand team. You should all feel intimidated right now. Scared, uncertain whether or not you can actually engage. Rituals remind us of who we are. They do something to us. They challenge us. They move us. They inspire us. They scare us. These are what rituals do. And so as we enter into Leviticus and we read about cutting up of animals and putting things here and putting things there and making sure that the blood is splattered here and making sure all these are put into place, I can imagine that the foreignness of all of that could possibly be similar to the foreignness of this if we didn't know what it was. Can you imagine being in the locker room beforehand? Okay, make sure your right hand goes on your left elbow. Like, put that in a sacred text, right? And they stomp your foot on the right side, then stomp your foot on the left side. I mean, I bet if we were to read that in a sacred text, exactly the directions that they were given for the haka, we would go, boring, you know, putting on that. But when you see it, and when you perform it, and when you're on the other end of receiving it, and not only is it the sound, but it's the smell, it's the feel, it's the visual, it's all of it put together. When all of that is put together, that ritual does something to you. For Tevye, it reminds us of who we are. For the Haka, it inspires, invigorates, prepares you for war. For you, it grounds you in your ideas, ideals, your hopes, your dreams, your everyday life. And this is what the beginning of Leviticus does. And that's why perhaps there's a whole list of the things that you are to do, where you're to put the blood, how you are to cut the animal up. Because reading it on the text probably is just so foreign and distant to us, it's hard for us to get our brains wrapped around it. But if you were there, so if, next time you pick up Leviticus and start reading, picture watching a priest dressed in the vestments at an altar with fire burning, crackling, smelling the smoke, 
in the hot day or the cool of the night, and watching an animal be slaughtered as a sin offering, as a peace offering, as a burnt offering to the Lord, to appease the gods, to make peace with. This is the feel. This is what they would have known and what they would have understood. We read it on a text today. They watched it happen. And just like watching that ritual does something to us, or I hope it does something to us, so this ritual in Leviticus did something to them. A couple side notes that I think are important just to understand before we move forward. Number one, the word Leviticus comes from the idea that probably some portions of Leviticus were written specifically to the priests. Some of the portions of Leviticus were written from the priest to the people. And oftentimes when we read our Bible, Bible, we think that Leviticus, it's all, you know, passed down to us. Take note of some of those little markers in the text. Sometimes Moses is speaking directly to Aaron and saying, this is your job. It's not for the people, it's your job. Number two, just a reminder, some background information. Sacrifice to deities was common. If you take a look at all of ancient history, and including even modern history, this kind of sacrifice was something that was very, very common amongst the people, amongst all sorts of different societies. And last, what's really uh, critical to understand, and uh, I'm not going to take time to really develop this thought or this point today. We'll talk about it at a later time. That God gave Israel careful instructions is different and distinct from what we see from other cultures. In other words, what God seems to be doing in this particular text is a progressive move of ordering the rituals in a way that has never been done before. For those of you who have been with us for a while, you've heard the phrase redemptive movement. It's the idea or the concept that God speaks in the language of the people, but then moves them just one step further moves them one step closer to what he had hoped or desired. And we may be seeing that a little bit in Leviticus. So, there's a couple questions that I'd like to ask you. When we see this, this is something that's difficult and challenging sometimes. But all of us have our rituals. What are your rituals? What are the things that you do? What are the things that you have taken on for yourself, the culture in your family? What are some life-changing events that have happened that precipitated maybe a new ritual development? Things like births, things like deaths, things like marriages or breakups, losing a job, uh, gaining, winning the lottery, I don't know. All sorts of different things change us, and they cause us to develop actually new rituals, new ways of thinking. Every time the year turns over, we all develop new rituals. And then, how can you make your rituals more meaningful? Because again, these rituals to the ancient Israelites were extremely meaningful. They meant something. They moved them. They inspired them. How can you make your rituals more meaningful, less mundane, less every day? These are some questions that I'd like for you to wrestle with and challenge, be challenged with. For the rest of what I'd like to share with you today, these particular rituals, as well as the grounding of the book of Leviticus, seems to be centered on one very specific theme, and that theme is holiness. You will see this word pop up over and over again. You will see this word when it comes to commentaries around the book of Leviticus. And it's not just holiness for God, it's also holiness of the people. 
You will hear this phrase, be holy as I am holy. So in many ways, as we peer back into the rituals and what Leviticus is and it does to us, it's a challenge for all of us and an inspiration to all of us to actually be holy as God is holy. Now, what does that mean? A couple clarifications, because this word holiness, especially in modern Christian circles, has been used in a variety of different ways. The first way that we often see the word holiness is through this lens of moralism. It's the idea that if you have messed up morally, then somehow you are impure, you're, you're a sinner, you are on the outskirts. And the moralistic idea is filled with and weighted with a lot of condemnation and a lot of shame. And I've heard this word holy be used in religious circles, Christian circles, churches all the time to describe how you are not and how you should be and how shameful it is for you if you are not. Now, that's one particular lens, and maybe that works for you. But as I read Leviticus and studied it a little bit more and tried to remember dig into this whole narrative of Genesis and Exodus and what God is doing— that, that lens honestly didn't seem to match for me. It didn't seem to work for me that God would redeem. I mean, Exodus is all about redemption and love and grace and forgiveness before there's even a law that is given. So this idea of, of God now pointing his finger at you and shaming you or making you feel that on the outskirts, just something didn't resonate with me. And today what I'd like to share is I think there's a different lens through which we see Leviticus, the rituals, and holiness— and that's through the lens of covenantal intimacy. Now, what do I mean by covenantal intimacy? What I mean is that there's something about the way that we follow God, that we live into this world, that is for God, that God gets glory from how we live. God's kingdom is advanced because of how we live. God is honored because of how we live. But covenantal intimacy isn't just for God. It is also to be with him. Not just that we are to do all the right things to make sure that God is somehow appeased or made happy, which kind of devolves back into, again, the ancient rituals of other pagan societies. These rituals are deeply enmeshed with this sense of God desires to be with you, to be close to you, to be one with you, to share that intimacy with you. As you read through the things that make you impure or unholy throughout Leviticus and other passages, if this intimacy is broken, it is not that you are shamed. It is that you all of a sudden become distant, that there's a separation there are portions of Leviticus where if you happen to participate in a sin or in something that is ritually impure, you are actually distanced from the community. So there's this relationship of closeness and distance that happens throughout this book. And then lastly, there's this distance from your own identity. Because who you are, how you see yourself, is deeply enmeshed with how you see God, your relationship with God, and your relationship with the community. So rather than shaming you, if you've done any of these things that we're going to read about in Leviticus, I hope that this finger that is often pointed at you as a result of you messing up is slowly just dissolved away. 
And instead of a finger pointing at you, there's more an open hand that is reached out saying, I want to be close to you again. I want you to be near me again. And I want to be near you again so that we can share this intimacy, this love, this closeness. A couple things of why I think this, and then we'll close. Number one, the very beginning opening passage, verse one, talks about if you are to bring an offering to the Lord. The word for offering here is the word korban. Everybody say korban. It's a Hebrew word that means to offer, but also means to sacrifice. But it's also the word that means to draw near, to be close. Uh, I think I've told this story before. I apologize if it's redundant. But when I was in Israel, the word for cabbage actually is kruv. The word for close is karov. It comes from this particular word. And I remember asking my Israeli tour guide, you know, can, can I have some karov? And he looked at me, question because basically I'd ask him, will you pl- please be near me? I want to be close to you. And I didn't say kruv, which is cabbage. I said karov, I want to be close to you. He's like, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. <laughs> so when we bring an offering, the idea of bringing a sacrifice, the idea of bringing an offering to the Lord is the idea and the concept of drawing close to him. The second concept and idea that emerges out of this is the real outline, or one of the real outlines, not the cut-up cow. One of the outlines in the way to view Leviticus is through a poetic structure. This is deep textual criticism thinking. I hope this makes sense to you. Particular, a variety of particular pieces of literature have different structures, and the structures themselves tell you something about the focus and the importance of what this piece of literature is trying to communicate. I've, I've said this before. Does anybody remember Forrest Gump and the opening scene, which is a feather that floats to and fro? What's the closing scene? A feather that floats to and fro. And in the middle of the movie... There's this phrase by Jenny, if, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Forrest Gump, there's this portion where Jenny is being abused by her father. Forrest is there. She kneels down in the field and she prays this prayer. Dear God, make me a bird so that I can fly far, far away. Feather at the beginning, feather at the end, bird in the middle. We do this today. We structure our poems, our, our movies, our books to bring focus and clarity. People did this in the ancient world. If you take a look closely at the outline and the structure of Leviticus, you see that there's rituals at the very beginning and at the very end of the book. You have the ritual sacrifices, the portions that we just read, and near the end, you have the ritual calendar, when you are to celebrate. Chapters 8 through 10 and chapters 21 through 22 is all about the priests, the people that stand in between us and God. 11 through 15 and 18 through 20 are all about purity. If you read those laws, what we are to do, what we're not to do, what it means to be pure, what it means to be impure. And then right here in the middle, we have what seems to be the focus. Building, building, building. And right here in the middle is one of the feasts and the festivals. That's mentioned down here, verse 23 through chapter 23 through 27, but it's given very specified attention. And that's the celebration of a festival called Yom Kippur, or also known as the Day of Atonement. Now, I know I'm giving you a lot today. This is really, really important for what I'd like to share, so please hang with me. 
The Day of Atonement is a message that we'll get to and we'll dig in a little bit further. It's a ritual ceremony about two goats. One of those goats is to be a sin offering that the priest is to slaughter and to offer up to God like a regular offering. That's the goat that is sacrificed and eaten with the priests. But then there's this second goat. The second goat, there's this ritual that the priest performs that he takes his two hands, places it on the head of the goat, and symbolically transfers all of the sin, all of the transgressions of the people onto this goat. It's called the scapegoat, which is where we get our term today. The hands of the priest are on the goat. The sins are transferred. The transgressions are transferred. But instead of killing this goat, which you would think would be a good idea, because if this goat now has all the sins, kill the sucker. But this goat isn't killed. This goat is sent away. Once again, a ritual that involves the contrast of closeness and distance. A celebration, a ritual, a holiday that says the redemption of us is the distancing of our sin, the distancing of our, transgression, our transgressions, so that we can draw near and draw close to God. So let's read this. Opening verse again. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you, and here's the English translation, brings, when anyone among you is drawing close to me, in order to draw close to me, brings an offering. There's this drawing close in order to draw close. Then draw close, be near. And bring your offering, which is the closeness, an animal from either the herd or the flock. Bring something of value that you have and draw near and draw close. This is the theme. Leviticus, with all of its rituals and all of its stuff that we're going to have to filter through and try to figure out all of the symbols and meanings, is fundamentally about how we draw close. And what is ultimately uh, the connection of those things? How do we draw close? We draw close fundamentally through offering, through sacrifice, through giving something up from our herd or from our flock. And this is something that we even practice to this day. For those of you who have practiced Lent, what do you do at Lent? You give something up. You sacrifice something. You offer something up in order to draw close to God in a whole new way. This whole idea of sacrifice and drawing close is something that I think every single one of us need to be constantly reminded of. Whenever we think about work, family, have you ever had a moment or a tension that you felt where you have drawn close to one only to sacrifice the other? To draw close is to sacrifice. And to sacrifice is to draw close. That's why I think the word, the korban word, the offering, closeness, and sacrifice as the same thing is so brilliant in this book. Because as they offer sacrifices, as they give something up that is of value to them, 
It is that giving up that draws them close. And this is what we have to do, and this is how we have to live in this world every single day. If there's distance somewhere in your life, if there's a challenge of, I don't feel close to fill in the blank, maybe perhaps one of the responses or solutions to why we don't feel close is because it's really, really difficult to make the sacrifice, to give something else up in order to feel close. And so we feel this tension in Leviticus. The sacrifices are really disturbing to us sometimes. But for these people and for the thrust of this text, sacrifice is the very means by which we draw close to God. Giving something up that is of value to us. How many of you have ever gone on a retreat? You give up something that is of value to you, something that gives you life, your schedule, your cell phone, Facebook. You give that up. You sacrifice that for a moment, for a season, so that you can draw close to God. There's moments where some, and I've heard beautiful stories, some of you have these stories, where you have this phenomenal deal at work or you have this phenomenal opportunity, but you know that if you took that opportunity and your work would flourish and you would make thousands, millions of dollars, whatever it is, you'd be phenomenally successful, your family would have been sacrificed. We make these decisions every single day. And so this is what I think is so brilliant about Leviticus and so brilliant about offering and closeness. This is what speaks to us. This is the tension that we all have to live with. This is the life that we live. We're all making sacrifices. We're all bringing something that is of value. We're all setting aside or sacrificing things that are of value to draw close to something. And the question is, what are we really drawing close to? And are we giving up certain things to draw close to other things that maybe we have our priorities mixed up? This is the challenge, and this is the encouragement from Leviticus. There's this beautiful song. And it's like a romance song. And you'll hear the word karov, which is exactly that word, sacrifice, that word. Come stand next to me. Now is the time. This is my daughter Tabby's, one of her favorite songs. And she said, why are you playing it tonight? She says, it's a love song. It's really beautiful. It is a love song. And we get so, we are, let's just be honest, we're going to get lost in the rituals and the blood and the animals and all the details. But fundamentally, what I think this book is about is about drawing near and drawing close and the sacrifices that are necessary to do that. And sacrifice is fundamental, actually, to that drawing close. So my challenge and encouragement for all of us is this. What sacrifices or offerings do we need to make in order for us to draw close and to draw near?
We just read about one. Here's how you bring this offering. Here's how you're to slaughter this bull. Here's how you're going to make this sacrifice. Here's how you draw close. But pull it today. What sacrifices? What offerings? What things in your life are you close to that give you life? But maybe you need to actually sacrifice that, give that up in order to draw close to something or someone else. Because all intimacy requires sacrifice. And then I'll close on this particular thought. Consider deeply, as God is requiring us to make these sacrifices, what sacrifices or offerings did God give in order to draw close to us? Consider deeply, my friends, the full breadth of our Christian narrative of what God has given up for us. And that sacrifice, if sacrifice and closeness and nearness and intimacy are intertwined, then consider deeply what God has given up for us in order to draw close to us. Our journey through this book will be a journey through ancient rituals and symbols that met the soul's desire to be close to God and the sacrifices and the offerings that were necessary to keep us with our Creator. That's our journey, and I hope you join us. There's a ton in here, a lot of really fun stuff, challenging stuff, bloody stuff, and all throughout, we will learn more and more through these ancient traditions what it means to draw close and draw near. And as we draw close and draw near to God, we draw close and we draw near to one another as well. And that's what happens in this community as they prepare to enter into the promised land. Father God, thank you for my friends and for this gathering. And this was a lot tonight, I know. It was difficult to sum a whole bunch of stuff up. But I pray that we could at least take one thing away in understanding you a little bit more, in understanding our ancestors a little bit more, and maybe even being challenged to sacrifice or give a couple things up so that we can draw near to you. And I do pray, God, that we would pause and recognize just a moment what sacrifices and offerings you made in order to draw close and near to us. And I pray that through this study, through this journey together, we will feel even closer and live into this world out of a sense of intimacy with you, the God who loves us, redeemed us, cherishes us, and makes us holy. And may we continually, even as we leave this place tonight, be with you. I pray in your name. Amen.